Welcome to Mind Shock. This is Bruce McGuire. And Maxwell Powers. And we're talking Bigfoot skepticism today. <laughs> All right. Yes, uh, we are going to examine the nature of being skeptical of the existence of Bigfoot. So, and that's something I don't think even gets talked about that much specifically. You know, let's let's put some of these skeptics under heavy scrutiny. <laughs> Once again, if you like our podcast, you can donate to our PayPal. Check the link in the description. And make sure you subscribe to the channel. Hit the bell for notifications. Make sure you like our Facebook page. And you could also check us out on Twitter, Patreon, and Reddit. So, I'm going to read an article from the CFI the Center for Inquiry, specifically Critical Inquiry into the Paranormal. And let's see what we think of it. So the name of this article is Bigfoot at 50, Evaluating a Half Century of Bigfoot Evidence by Benjamin Radford. And this was published April of 2000. The question of Bigfoot's existence comes down to the claim that where there's smoke, there's fire. The evidence suggests that there are enough sources of error that there does not have to be a hidden creature lurking amid the unsubstantiated cases. I wonder what they think of the substantiated cases. Anyway, those sightings of the North American Bigfoot date back to the 1830s. I mean, they actually go back farther, but this is the article. Interest in Bigfoot grew rapidly during the second half of the 20th century. This was spurred on by many magazine articles of the time, most seminally a December 1959 true magazine article describing the discovery of large, mysterious footprints the year before in Bluff Creek, California. Does Bluff Creek sound familiar to you, Maxwell? Yeah, that's where the Patterson-Gimlin footage was shot, in the most famous footage of Bigfoot in 1967. Nice. Yeah, there were actually footprints being found in that area beforehand as well. A half century later, the question of Bigfoot's existence remains open. Bigfoot is still sought, the pursuit kept alive by a steady stream of sightings, occasional photos or footprint finds, and sporadic media coverage. But what evidence has been gathered over the course of 50 years? And what conclusions can we draw from that evidence? Most Bigfoot investigators favor one theory of Bigfoot's origin or existence and stake their reputations on it, sniping at others who don't share their views. Many times what one investigator sees as clear evidence of Bigfoot, another will dismiss out of hand. In July 2000, curious tracks were found on the Lower Ho Indian Reservation in Washington State. Bigfoot tracker Cliff Crook claimed that the footprints were for sure a Bigfoot. Though Jeffrey Meldrum, an associate professor of biological sciences at Idaho State University, and member of the Bigfoot Field Research Organization, BFRO, decided that there was not enough evidence to pursue the matter. A set of tracks found in Oregon's Blue Mountains have also been the source of controversy within the community. Grover Krantz maintains that they constitute among the best evidence for Bigfoot, yet longtime researcher Renee Dahinden 
claimed that any village idiot can see they are fake 100% fake. And while many Bigfoot researchers stand by the famous 16mm Patterson-Gimlin film showing a large man-like creature crossing a clearing, man-like, I mean it was a female Bigfoot, but as genuine, including Dahinden, who shared the film's copyright, others, including Crook, joined skeptics in calling it a hoax. In 1999, Crook found what he claims in evidence in the film of a bell-shaped fastener on the hip of the alleged Bigfoot, evidence that he suggests may be holding the ape costume in place. Dahinden claimed the object is matted feces. And once again, this was before the remastered footage from M.K. Davis, where you can see that there's clearly, there aren't even any eye holes, let alone any kind of buckles or zippers or separations anywhere in the fur. So that's, that's pretty interesting. Regardless of which theories researchers subscribe to, the question of Bigfoot's existence comes down to evidence, and there is plenty of it. Indeed, there are reams of documents about Bigfoot filing cabinets overflowing with thousands of sighting reports, analysis, and theories. Photographs have been taken of everything from the alleged creature to odd tracks left in the snow to twisted branches. Collections exist of dozens or hundreds of footprints cast from all over North America. There is indeed no shortage of evidence. The important criterion, however, is not the quantity of evidence, but the quality of it. Lots of poor quality evidence does not add up to strong evidence, just as many cups of weak coffee cannot be combined into a strong cup of coffee. Are you, I'm not following that analogy. If each cup of coffee only has like one gram of caffeine, if you drink all of them, you, you'd get the same hit as a, if you drink a hundred, you'd still get a hundred. Yeah, I'm, I'm not following that analogy. Do you understand that analogy, Maxwell? Um, yeah, it's kind of weird. <laughs> Bigfoot evidence can be broken down into four general types. Eyewitness sightings, footprints, recordings, and somatic samples, hair, blood, etc. Some researchers, notably Lauren Coleman, also places substantial emphasis on folklore and indigenous legends. The theories and controversies within each category are too complex and detailed to go into here. I present merely a brief overview and short discussion of each. Anyone interested in the details is encouraged to look further. One, eyewitness accounts. Eyewitness accounts and anecdotes comprise the bulk of Bigfoot evidence. This sort of evidence is also the weakest. Lawyers, judges, and psychologists are well aware that eyewitness testimony is notoriously unreliable. You know, <laughs> I mean, he's, he's committing a whole lot of fallacies, including hasty generalization here. When witness testimony is unreliable, that means, for example, when someone's trying to identify a person, not whether or not there was a person there. So if there's multiple witnesses citing a Bigfoot creature, that means there was something there, not that, they, not that there wasn't something there. Right. That's, not, that's a good distinction. I like that. Yeah. So it's not like eyewitness testimony is like, oh, the car was an SUV. Well, maybe it was a truck instead, but there was a vehicle that existed. They weren't lying about the existence of a vehicle. So in most cases, obviously, in certain cases, if there was some corruption or lying going on, they might have fabricated that. But as Ben Roche, editor of the Cryptozoological Review, noted in an article in 14 Times, cryptozoology is based largely on anecdotal evidence. 
While physical phenomena can be tested and systematically evaluated by science, anecdotes cannot as they are neither physical nor regulated in contact or form. Because of this, anecdotes are not reproducible and are thus untestable. Since they cannot be tested, they are not falsifiable and are not part of the scientific process. Also, reports usually take place in uncontrolled settings and are made by untrained, varied observers. People are generally poor witnesses and can mistake known animals for supposed cryptids unknown animals or poorly recall details of their sighting simply put eyewitness testimony is poor evidence roche 2001 you know what else is interesting how some of these skeptics completely ignore all the cryptids that had been reported for sometimes hundreds of years before being finally recognized by science kind of like the giant squid if you're on a boat and you see like a giant tentacle through the water, you're like, okay, it's a gigantic squid. It's not a normal size squid. And so be like, oh, no, 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 you just saw a regular size squid. It's not a giant squid. But then eventually, you know, one washes up on shore. Now they have the physical evidence. And now all of the eyewitness testimony that's deemed unreliable was actually true. What do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Uh, what is a cryptid? A cryptid is a creature not officially recognized by science. Well, you know what's really funny, actually? There was quite a few cryptids that... Even the platypus was actually a cryptid at one point. Okay. So in the 18th and 19th centuries, no matter how many of these unreliable witnesses spotted these uh, platypus creatures, they were not officially recognized by science. In 1799, English zoologist George Shaw began and ended his description of a platypus carcass with the acknowledgement that this might be a crazy hoax. Here's an excerpt. Of all the mammalia yet known, it seems the most extraordinary in its conformation, exhibiting the perfect resemblance of the beak of a duck engrafted on the head of a quadruped. So accurate is the similitude that at first view, it naturally excites the idea of some deceptive preparation by artificial means. The very epidermis, proportion, features, manner of opening, and other particulars of the beak of a shoveler or other broadbill species of duck presenting themselves to the view, nor is it without the most minute and rigid examination that we can persuade ourselves of it being the real beak or snout of a quadruped. On a subject so extraordinary as the present, a degree of skepticism is not only pardonable, but laudable. And I ought perhaps to acknowledge that I almost doubt the testimony of my own eyes with respect to the structure of this animal's beak, yet must confess that I can perceive no appearance of any deceptive preparation and the edges of the rictus, the insertion, and when tried by the test of maceration in water as to render every part completely movable, seem perfectly natural, nor can the most accurate examination of expert anatomists discover any deception in this particular. So he seemed to think that it was real, but he was also saying it could be fake. So again, obviously it took a body and, you know, probably more than one body for it to eventually move its way. Now, now how many people are saying that platypus is a, is a fake made up creature and all the witnesses of a platypus are crazy and unreliable? What makes the witnesses, when you see a platypus in the wild today, what makes you less reliable than someone who saw it before it was recognized by science? Uh, uh, a lot of this is like that, that big dinosaur, right? Like that swings and shit with a long neck. Is that what that is? I don't know no, that's that is. 
That's a plesiosaur. A platypus is kind of like a giant duck. Oh, it's a fucking regular, um, it's a regular animal. Regular today. It wasn't back, you know, back. I should look that up because I don't really know what it looks like. It kind of looks like a, a beaver and a duck in one. Oh, wait, I remember now. Fucking Discovery Channel. I remember now. I remember now. Yeah, so back then, it wasn't a so-called real animal. Only when so-called institutions or the system recognized it, all of a sudden, all the skeptics were like, oh, yeah, I guess it's real. So, so wait a second. So were all the witnesses who spotted this creature... I guess they really weren't crazy. I guess their testimony really was legitimate. Were they reliable or were they not reliable? They only become, like when you spot a bear in the woods, are you a reliable witness? Right. I mean, what makes it more or less re reliable? If we're using the appeal to authority fallacy, that means it's only reliable if, like if you say you saw a squirrel in the woods, is anybody going to call you an unreliable witness? So it's it's just it's kind but of. It's, but if it's something unrecognized by science, then it's later, and if you describe it fully, and other people describe it the same way, um, it's still not recognized. Yeah. So all of these witnesses, who's now I'm not saying all. I'm talking about the witnesses that are consistent with descriptions of the Bigfoot and the behavior of the Bigfoot with other witnesses. Maybe they're reliable. Maybe they're not. Are we just going to assume they're not reliable? Because, I mean, some people who spot squirrels, they might it might have not been a squirrel. It might have been another animal. Or maybe they do have some kind of psychological condition. Maybe they imagined the squirrel because they were watching videos of squirrels online. That's a possibility. Obviously, not every single witness is reliable. But when you have all of these reports, I mean, I kind of agree to only to a certain extent that quantity is not as important as quality, obviously. Like a thousand reports would not be as good as one body of a Bigfoot. But when you move into the realm of once you increase the digits and the numbers of sightings and the years, again, not quite as good as a body, but it's, it's once you get high enough in the numbers, once the quantity reaches a certain point, even though it's not as high in quality, you still have to notice it. It's, you know, one for a hundred fake reports are still more substantial than one. Doesn't mean it's true. Once you get into a thousand, even if you have a 99%, 99% misidentification, let's say 99% of the people who think they see Bigfoot actually see bears. Once we get to thousands and thousands of sightings, if 99% of them are bears, that, that still leaves some to be something else. So Again, dis completely discounting quantity is, is weird, too. But the Okapi was also, it's like the zebra horse. That one was also a cryptid. So that wasn't accepted for quite some time. And the Africans, the indigenous Africans knew about it. And so it's, it's kind of like Native Americans know about Bigfoot. So the indigenous people who have been around for a long time, they've been in the woods, their ancestors, you know, obviously stories are passed down from the ancestors to completely discount indigenous people. When we have historical examples, why are people willing to ignore history? I don't understand, you know, the skeptics. Skeptics seem to always ignore history. It's kind of weird. And again, I'm using the term skeptic in the general sense. In the actual sense of what the word means, I think I'm a skeptic because I don't believe anything. 
I'm not going to believe it's not real either. <laughs> so, and for the Okapi to be officially recognized, they actually needed help from the natives to track them down. And they found some skulls and skins of the Okapi to confirm that it existed. I mentioned the giant squid. Obviously, the giant squid has been in legends going back all the way to Aristotle and ancient Rome. And they had some pretty accurate descriptions of the giant squid. Some people think it was the, the kraken, the lusca, but the first giant squid carcass actually was discovered in the 1870s. But it was only recently that they had actual, a lot of more photographs. And then of course we have the mountain gorilla and, and quite a few other species. So again, to completely discount eyewitness accounts, it's, it's as silly as taking an eyewitness account at 100 face value, 100% face value. So Bigfoot investigators acknowledge that lay eyewitnesses can be mistaken, but counter that expert testimony should be given more weight. Consider Coleman's passage reflecting on expert eyewitness testimony. Even those scientists who have seen these creatures with their own eyes have been reluctant to come to terms with their observations in a scientific manner. An example he gives the account of mycologist Gary Samuels and his brief sighting of a large primate in the forest of Guyana. The implication is that this exacting man of science accurately observed, recalled, and reported his experience. And he may have, but Samuels is a scientific expert on tiny fungi that grow on wood. His expertise is botany, not identifying large primates in poor conditions. Anyone, degreed or not, can be mistaken. I'm going to counter that with anyone, degreed or not, can also give an accurate report of what they saw. I mean, you're a human being. If you see an, a bear very clearly in the woods, you can say that was a bear or even at night in the shadows. If you know what a bear looks like or if you've counted one before or you've seen a bear on TV, you generally know what the size of the bear is, how it moves, what kind of noises it makes. You can accurately describe a bear at night, too. You don't have to have a degree. But once we start talking Bigfoot, all of a sudden, no testimony is good enough. <laughs> All right, let's move on to two footprints. Bigfoot tracks are the most recognizable evidence. Of course, the animal's very name came from the size of the footprints it leaves behind. Unlike sightings, they are physical evidence. Something, known animal, Bigfoot or man, left the tracks. The real question is what the tracks are evidence of. In many cases, the answer is clear. They are evidence of hoaxing. Contrary to many Bigfoot enthusiasts' claims, Bigfoot tracks are not particularly consistent and show a wide range of variation. Some tracks have toes that are aligned, others show splayed toes. Most alleged Bigfoot tracks have five toes, but some casts show creatures with two, three, four, or even six toes. Surely all these tracks can't come from the same unknown creature or even species of creatures. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Why not? Why can't different species have different types of toes? And who said it was a Bigfoot? Maybe it could be another cryptid. But if you're, if you're taking the position that cryptids don't exist and can't exist for whatever reason, then you'd say they were all hoax. So this kind of black and white fallacy thinking is prevalent by many of these so-called skeptics. What do you think about that? Um, Not all prints are footprints, though. 
In September 2000, a team of investigators from the Bigfoot Field Research Organization led an expedition near Mount Adams in Washington State, finding the first Bigfoot body print, which, if authentic, is arguably the most significant find in the past two decades. The Bigfoot, according to the team, apparently made the impression when it laid on its side at the edge of a muddy bank and reached over to grab some bait. This, of course, raises the question as to why the animal would make such an odd approach to the food instead of simply walking over to it and taking it. As the log of the expedition reads, one explanation is immediately apparent. The animal did not want to leave tracks. This explanation fails on its own logic. If the Bigfoot, or whatever it was, was so concerned about not leaving traces of its presence, why did it then leave a huge 15-square-foot imprint in the mud for the team to find? Well, once again, it would be impossible to say. What if the Bigfoot just fell down? What if it slipped? <laughs> or what if it was a hoax? I mean, when it's unknown, it's unknown. To just automatically assume it was a hoax, or to automatically assume it couldn't have been real, it's like, assume, I mean, there's infinite variables in that. But, I mean, that is a good point, though. Maybe that one was a hoax. Three, recordings. The most famous recording of an alleged Bigfoot is the short 16-millimeter film taken in 1967 by Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin. Shot in Bluff Creek, California, it shows a Bigfoot striding through a clearing. In many ways, the veracity of the Patterson film is crucial because the cast made from those tracks are as close to a gold standard as one finds in cryptozoology. Many in the Bigfoot community are adamant that the film is not, and more important, cannot be a hoax. The question of whether the film is in fact a hoax or not is still open, but the claim that the film could not have been faked is demonstrably false. Grover Krantz, for example, admits that the size of the creature in the film is well within human limits, but argues that the chest width is impossibly large to be a human. I can confidently state that no man of that stature is built that broadly, he claims. This assertion was examined by two anthropologists, David Daigling and Daniel Schmidt, who cite anthropometric literature showing that impossibly wide chest is in fact within normal human variation. They also disprove claims that the Patterson creature walks in a manner impossible for a person to duplicate. So this particular skeptic is putting all this faith in these two random guys. Is to, are two random guys anthropologists or not? Because there's a whole bunch of other anthropologists who say that it couldn't have been faked because nothing walks like that. I mean, you got to use your own brain a little bit too. I've seen some analysis where it shows that the arms are too long for those proportions. Once again, that doesn't mean it was impossible to fake. It just means it was possibly the best fake because Bob Geronimus was the guy that sort of admitted to being in the suit, but then his claims were debunked because he didn't even know where it was. He didn't know any of the details about it. He just made it up for fame. They pretty much conclusively proved that. And also they analyzed the way he walks and the way the Bigfoot walks. And the Bigfoot has definitely a gait that is quite quite substantial and has as so far has not been demonstrated by any human so yeah i don't know why the skeptics put all these blind faith in anybody who happens to have the same bias that they do but anyway the film is suspect for a number of reasons first patterson told people he was going out with the express purpose of capturing a bigfoot on camera 
Hold on a second. Hold on a second. How does that, how did, wouldn't that increase his chances of seeing Bigfoot if he was specifically looking for Bigfoot in an area where Bigfoot prints had been found? If Bigfoot is real? That's true. So, it's it's so weird because it's like they're going with the assumption of the foregone conclusion that Bigfoot is fake. But if it's an unknown, if we're being scientifically honest, and it's unknown whether Bigfoot exists or not, someone looking for something might be more likely to find it if they are looking at an area where it is rumored to exist, even if not proven. And there is some kind of evidence suggesting it could be there. It's It's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. In the intervening 35 years, and despite dramatic advances in technology and wide distribution of handheld camcorders, thousands of people have gone in search of Bigfoot and come back empty-handed, or with little but fuzzy photos. Oh, man. Oh, there's so much uh, so much to speak on that. You know about whale watching, right? No, I don't know. You don't know what whale watching is? Well, you just go out in a boat and just watch it. Yeah, so sometimes, sometimes people go out to whale watch in a known area of whale activity and they don't see a single whale i mean they bring all their cameras and they don't see a single whale does that mean that whales don't exist <laughs> so again we're assuming that if bigfoot's entire existence is predicated on the fact that it had to evolve to be able to hide its existence if if it exists if that's its evolutionary trait to evade capture or evade being spotted. I mean, the snow leopard of Afghanistan, I mean, there's almost no footage of it. Up until recent years, it was, there's very, very little footage, photographs, videos, and this is a creature that's known to exist. So an unknown cryptid, wouldn't that be even more difficult to capture on video? And not to mention, they're also assuming if all of the photographs and videos are fake, I mean, obviously some of them are, but, if some of them aren't, and we don't also don't know the Bigfoot population. If the Bigfoot population is very, very small and spread out, and most of them live so far off the beaten track, I mean, it wouldn't be that, I mean, again, without having all of the information, without having all the data, we can't assume how likely or unlikely it would be. Maybe the ratio of real, if Bigfoot's real, maybe the ratio of real photos and videos to the population is what it's supposed to be. We don't know. And then, of course, we discussed this in some of our other pod, uh, Bigfoot podcasts. If there are some people who know that Bigfoot exists and they want to keep them hidden, they're not gonna they're not gonna go public with that information. So they're gonna actually help them stay hidden. We probably need a dedicated podcast on that. But okay, so let's continue. Second, a known Bigfoot tracks hoaxer claimed to have told Patterson exactly where to go to see the Bigfoot on that day. Wait a second. So people's words are now, well, I thought, I thought they said witnesses were unreliable. So how is hearsay reliable and witnesses unreliable? Wouldn't that be filed under witness? And also, even if that was a Bigfoot track hoaxer, how do we know that he didn't also at a certain point, if he's always going in the woods and making fake tracks, Maybe he saw a real track one day. Wouldn't he be more likely to see a real track than someone who doesn't even know about Bigfoot? <laughs> I'm just saying. This is just food for thought. Um, yeah, that's interesting. What's his motivation? Like, wait, they, they actually know a person like that? But I don't know. That's a weird motivation to do. Like, what the hell? Like, ah, man. 
so a lot of these skeptics, they're so cognitive dissonant, they're not really interested in their truth. They're just interested in debunking for the sake of debunking to preserve their viewpoint or belief system. So they can't even comprehend that. Let's say you are a hoaxer and you're going in the woods all the time and making fake tracks. Now, why did you choose that location? If Native Americans told you that they were possibly, or there's legends of Bigfoot in that area, you, you want some fame, whatever. Maybe you're a young kid, maybe you just want to make money, whatever, however old you are. So you go and fake them to match up with the Native legends. Now, what if, so if you're going in the woods faking all the time, what if you find a real one at one point? I mean, obviously nobody's going to believe you because you're a faker. I wonder if there was such a person like someone who's an hoaxer and actually saw Sasquatch and then I wonder what happened. Well, kind of like, I guess it would be kind of like a boy who cried wolf situation, but here, here's the thing that I don't quite get. Someone who's constantly going in the woods and making fake tracks, I mean, they would be familiar with the area. They, I mean, it's almost like they'd be an expert in tracks. So if they did see a real one, if Bigfoot exists, they would know it was a real one if they were an expert hoaxer, right? <laughs> uh, I see. So if they happened a real one and they knew nobody would believe them, maybe they gave the information to someone else. And we don't even know exactly if that's true or not. I mean, that's what this report is saying, whether that, that was a known hoaxer. But, or maybe he saw real ones and then he couldn't find them again. So then he hoaxed them for fame and fortune that he believed he deserved because he actually did see real ones at one point, but he couldn't find more. I mean, we don't know. There's impossible variables. It's assuming one thing or another just to suit cognitive dissonance that that's uh that's not scientific or logical so let's keep going third patterson made quite a profit from the film including publicity for a book he had written on the subject and an organization he had started once again another fallacious point let's say you captured a real bigfoot would you not make money off of it why would you not make money for it and that point is even exponentially more wrong because Bob Gimlin made no money off of it and always insisted that it was legitimate. There was, a, there was issues between Patterson and Gimlin, but Gimlin, I think he sold the rights to it for like a dollar or something. There was a, a weird, there was a weird history there. We're not going to go into all of that now, but Gimlin was an honest man making an honest living and he claimed that it was legitimate and he still does. And he did not write a book or make, or make money off uh, recently, he's kind of gone public again with it, but at the time, and for quite quite some period of time, he, he did not. So, how does making a profit from something make it illegitimate? The people, the National Geographic photographers who captured the, the snow leopard, they're making money off of it. Why wouldn't they? Capturing a rare creature on video, why wouldn't you make money of it? It's kind of weird. Okay. In his book, Bigfoot, John Napier, an anatomist and anthropologist who served as the Smithsonian Institute's director of primate biology, devotes several pages to close analysis of the Patterson film. He finds many problems with the film, including that the walk and size is consistent with a man's, the center of gravity seen in the subject is essentially that of a human, and the step length is inconsistent with the tracks allegedly taken from the site. Don Grieve, an anatomist specializing in human gait, came to the conclusion that the walk was essentially human in type and could be made by a modern man. Napier writes that there is little doubt that the scientific evidence taken collectively points to a hoax of some kind. Once again, if this creature is related to the human, 
wouldn't it wouldn't it be somewhat similar to a human walk? It's not like we're looking at a horse here. We're looking at some kind of hominid. First of all, second of all, these are these guys' opinions and once again appeal to authority fallacy. If this guy works for the Smithsonian and there's some kind of cover up, I'm not saying there is, but if there is, then obviously he would say that. So <laughs> Yeah. Other films and photos of creatures supposed to be Bigfoot have appeared, perhaps best well known among them, the Wild Creek photos allegedly purchased by Cliff Crook of Bigfoot Central from an anonymous park ranger. Okay, let's move on to Bigfoot voices. One of the most interesting bits of evidence offered for the existence of Bigfoot is sound recordings of vocalizations. One company, Sierra Sounds, markets a CD called The Bigfoot Recordings, The Edge of Discovery. Narrated by Jonathan Frakes, an actor who also narrated a special on the infamous alien autopsy hoax, the recording claims to have captured vocalizations among a Bigfoot family. The sounds are a series of guttural grunts, howls, and growls. Now, hold on a second. I want to make a quick aside on the alien autopsy hoax. Have you seen the alien autopsy video? Yes, yeah, a long time ago. Yes, yeah, so here's the deal. Now, that one never quite looked real to me. I was very, very skeptical of that one. I was more skeptical of that one than probably most of the videos. Something just looked off about it. Again, call it intuition, whatever you want to call it. I just didn't buy it. Whereas the Bigfoot one, the Patterson-Gimlin, I was looking at a low-res copy, and I just assumed it was fake. There was no intuition. I didn't get a feeling it was fake. I just assumed it. It looked kind of fake. I investigated no further until M.K. Davis had the remastered footage in high res where you can actually see the muscles rippling under the skin. You can see that there's no eye hole. You can see that there's no separation from the lips to the cheek. It's, it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. If it's a fake, it's, it's better than the suits today <laughs> because there's no CGI on it. So... With the alien autopsy hoax, or some of these other so-called hoaxes, let's say if it gained too much, let's say it was legitimate, and it gained too much steam, let's say the government or some various interest group wanted to dismiss it as a hoax, if they threw enough money at the alleged hoaxers, would they not admit it was a hoax even if it wasn't? Okay, so let's say... The alien autopsy is a hoax. It, let's say the government or whoever, the CIA, some kind of group that wants it to be seen as a hoax. If they threw enough money at the so-called hoaxers or threatened them or their families or jail time or whatever, I mean, it's the government, they could threaten whatever they want. Would, wouldn't that cause the so-called makers of the video to say it was a hoax, even if it wasn't a hoax? Yeah, that's true. That's actually pretty easy and if once they say it's a hoax, nobody will believe them ever again. So that's a pretty good way to delegitimize a legitimate piece of evidence. Once again, I don't really think that alien autopsy is legitimate. I don't know. Obviously, I don't know for sure. But the so I thought that, I thought that was publicly debunked. What? I thought that was publicly. I thought it was already public that it's supposedly the guys that made the video or certain people who made the video, they admitted it was a hoax and how they did it. I'm just saying, I didn't mean this as a specific example to the alien autopsy video. I'm just, that reminded me of hoax videos in general. When the maker of a video comes out and says, oh, by the way, it was a hoax. Like, what's the real motivation for them to do that? 
Because if they don't do that, they can continue making a certain amount of money by peddling it as real if it's fake. But to admit it's fake, that pretty much stops the flow of whatever little amount of money. Whereas if someone offered them much more money to say it's a hoax, to just remove it from the playing field of evidence to be considered as part of some agenda or a cover-up, that's all that reminded I'm not saying specifically the alien autopsy hoax video. I'm talking about any videos that supposedly were admitted to be hoax. Like, what if Bob Gimlin just comes out one day and says, oh, yeah, we faked that video. Everybody's going to be like, oh, see, see, it's fake. But what if it's real? And he just said it's fake. I can see these people get, get more impressed than uh, money from the Okay, so the record, and, and again, he's he's doing, uh, even by just mentioning that it's the guy who did the narration, I mean, he's kind of going ad hominem now because he's saying because this person was involved in something that was a hoax, that must mean that this is a hoax. I mean, it's kind of uh, very, very fallacious. The recording claims to have captured vocalizations among a Bigfoot family. The sounds are a series of guttural grunts, howls, and growls. The website and liner notes offer testimonials by expert Nancy Logan. Logan, their linguist, apparently has little or no actual training or degree in linguistics. Her self-described credentials include playing the flute, speaking several languages, and having a Russian friend who thinks I'm Russian. Logan confidently asserts that the tapes are not faked and that the vocal range is too broad to be made by a human. She suggests that the Bigfoot language shows signs of complexity, possibly including profanities. On one spot of the tape, an airplane goes by and they seem to get very excited and not very happy about it. Maybe those are Sasquatch swear words. <laughs> That's funny. Here's what Krantz writes about Bigfoot recordings. One tape was analyzed by some university sound specialists who determined that a human voice could not have made them. They required a much longer vocal track. A Sasquatch investigator later asked one of these experts if a human could imitate the sound characteristics by simply cupping his hands around his mouth. The answer was yes. Okay, so they're using this one guy to somehow say that all these recordings are fake. That's kind of weird. As for other such recordings, Kranz has listened to at least 10 such tapes and finds no compelling reason to believe that any of them are what the recorders claim them to be. Okay, so if this one guy is too cognitive dissonant to consider the possibility that these are Bigfoot or Sasquatch making these noises, of course he would say that. And this was also back in 2002. Obviously, since then, there have been many, many more audio recordings and many, many more specialists and experts who've analyzed millions of species and have said that these could not have been made by any of them. Once again, doesn't mean that it's a Bigfoot. It could be some other kind of animal that's not a Bigfoot. But just interesting to consider, this particular article is just so fallacious, it's, it's almost amusing. Once again, that doesn't mean Bigfoot is real. That just, their arguments against it are just pretty silly. Four somatic samples, hair and blood samples, have been recovered from alleged Bigfoot encounters. As with all other evidence, the results are remarkable for their inconclusiveness. When a definite conclusion has been reached, the samples have been invariably turned out to have prosaic sources. Bigfoot hair turns out to be elk, bear, or cow hair, for example, or suspected Bigfoot blood is revealed to be transmission fluid. Even advances in genetic technology have proven fruitless. Contrary to popular belief, DNA cannot be derived from hair samples alone. The root or some blood must be available. Yeah, I don't think that's true. 
In his book, Big Footprints, Grover Krantz discusses the evidence for Bigfoot other than fit footprints, including hair, feces, skin scrapings, and blood. The usual fate of these items is that they either receive no scientific study or else the documentation of that study is either lost or unobtainable. Now, hold on a second. If there's a cover-up, as I mean, we've gone over this many, many times in our, consp in our Bigfoot conspiracy video, we talk about how samples that were verified to have been sent to a lab disappeared. And quite a few other. Then we also have the Ketchum DNA study, over 100 samples. If there is a conspiracy or cover-up, of course the samples would disappear. Now, I'm not saying there is. I'm just saying if there is, that would explain that. And that doesn't mean that Bigfoot's not real. There's just so many fallacies in kind of just assuming it's not real because of these particular variables. And also, there are quite a few legitimate sources who have said that the DNA does not match any known creature in various countries that may or may not have a cover-up. If the cover-up is only in the United States, it's only in the United States. But I'm not sure, I don't know if I could compare the exact dates. I think I think the late 90s was the first legitimate one, but may, maybe it was after 2002, I don't remember now. In most cases where competent analysis have been made, the material turned out to be bogus or else no determination could be made. He continues, a large amount of what looks like hair has been recovered from several places in the Blue Mountains since 1987. Samples of this were examined by many supposed experts, ranging from the FBI to barbers. Most of these called it human. The Redkin Company found significant difference from human hair, but the Japan Hair Medical Science Lab declared it as synthetic fiber. Now, here's another point that they're not considering. If the hair makeup of a Bigfoot hair is so unlike what the test can detect, it could say it's a synthetic fiber or something it's not because the test is not designed to detect something that different from a human or other animal. I'm not, I don't know if it's some kind of weird interdimensional creature that doesn't quite have the same makeup as a mammal from this dimension. I mean, I don't know. There's, there's infinite variables. A scientist at Washington State University first called it synthetic, then looked more closely and decided it was a real hair of an unknown type. Final confirmation came when E.B. Wynn, a pharmaceutical businessman from Switzerland, had a sample tested in Europe. The fiber was positively identified as artificial and its exact composition was determined. It is a product known commercially as Dynel, which is often used as imitation hair. Once again, if the makeup of that hair was so unlike what the test is used to find, it could have matched that without being that. I'm not saying that that's what happened. I'm just saying we don't know if that's what happened or not. In his analysis, Wynn noted that another alleged Bigfoot sign found at the site, tree splintering, had also been faked. Also, I mean, I don't know how they determined that, but... Hoaxes, the gold standard, and the problem of experts. Such hoaxers have permanently and irreparably contaminated Bigfoot research. Skeptics have long pointed this out, and many Bigfoot researchers freely admit that their field is rife with fraud. But once again, isn't every field rife with fraud? This highlights a basic problem underlying all Bigfoot research, the lack of a standard measure. For example, we know what a bear track looks like. If we find a track that we suspect was left by a bear, we can compare it to one we know was left by a bear. But there are no undisputed Bigfoot specimens by which to compare new evidence. New Bigfoot tracks that don't look like older samples are generally not taken as proof that one or both sets are fake, but instead that the new tracks are simply from a different Bigfoot or from a different species or family. This unscientific lack of falsifiability plagues other areas of Bigfoot research as well. 
unscientific lack of falsifiability. That's an interesting way to phrase it. Or just one logical assessment that it's either fake or they're a Bigfoot of different species. Bigfoot print hoaxing is a time-honored cottage industry. Dozens of people have admitted making fake Bigfoot prints. One man, Rant Mullins, revealed in 1982 that he and friends had carved giant Bigfoot tracks and used them to fake footprints as far back as 1930. In modern times, it is easier to get Bigfoot tracks. With the advent of the World Wide Web and online auctions, anyone in the world can buy a cast of an alleged Bigfoot print and presumably make tracks that would very closely match tracks accepted by some as authentic. Now, another quick point here. If Bigfoot is kind of like a big industry, let's say there were big, real Bigfoot tracks at one point, but they were very rare. So people who want to make money... They're faking Bigfoot tracks because they know there's interest in the subject because Bigfoot is a cryptid as yet undiscovered. Now, let's say one day it becomes discovered and completely accepted by science. At that point, all of these hoaxers will be out of business. So they're kind of just striking while the iron is hot. I mean, it's kind of like making fake gold. You know, at a time when everybody wants gold, you're making fake gold to take advantage of people. So hoaxers, there's hoaxers in every single industry. That doesn't mean... You know, like if you're a counterfeiter making fake money, that doesn't mean that there's not other money that's real. You're using some kind of a real archetype to make fake from. Now, obviously, in the case of Bigfoot, if that origin, if some of those original tracks are fake, then all the other tracks would also be fake. But since we don't know for sure, how can we determine that? It seems kind of weird to just assume one way or the other. What we have then are new tracks, hairs, and other evidence being compared to known hoax tracks, hairs, as well as possibly hoax tracks, hairs, etc. With sparse hard evidence to go on and no good standard by which to judge new evidence, it is little wonder that the field is in disarray and has trouble proving its theories. In one case, Krantz described as one of the gold standards of Bigfoot tracks a print that passed all my criteria, published in private that distinguishes Sasquatch tracks from human tracks and from fakes. He further agreed that it had all the signs of a living foot and no human hook foot could have made that imprint. Michael R. Dennett, investigating for the skeptical inquirer, he doesn't sound biased at all, tracked down the anonymous construction worker who supplied the Bigfoot print. The man admitted faking the tracks himself to see if Kranz could really detect the fake. Now, here's another problem. Why is this? So witnesses are unreliable, but he's taking on blind faith that the man who admitted to faking the tracks, which he could have done for attention, he could have been a compulsive liar, he could have been paid. I mean, we don't know why people lie. People lie for different reasons. And I'm not saying this guy's lying. I'm saying that why would the words of a person supersede everything else? People can lie. So just because he said he made the print, does that mean he made the print? Now, if they, I, I, I'm not aware of this particular case. If he actually provide, if he actually made the print in front of them and it matched the other print that this that this expert said was a living foot and could not be made by a human, I don't know. Maybe he did show them how he made it, and then that would be a legitimate. But if he just said he did, kind of like Bob Geronimus, who said he was in the suit of the big foot. Oh, yeah, I guess that bit, the Gim, the Patterson Gimlin footage is fake because some guy said. He was in the suit. It's, it's so weird how people take on blind faith something that matches their bias or dissonance, where they completely dismiss something more than words. It might not be definitive, but it's, it's just strange. What do you think about that? Um, oh, it's strange, I guess. <laughs> That's all you got? Yeah.
<laughs> Maxwell Army. <laughs> Kranz certainly isn't alone in his mistaken identifications. One of the biggest names in cryptozoology, Ivan Sanderson, was badly fooled by tracks he confidently proclaimed would be impossible to fake. In 1948, and for a decade afterward, giant three-toed footprints were found along the beach in Clearwater, Florida. Sanderson, described as a man who was extremely knowledgeable on many subjects and had done more field work than most zoologists do today, spent two weeks at the site of the tracks investigating, analyzing the tracks, and consulting other experts. He concluded the tracks were made by a 15-foot-tall penguin. In 1988, prankster Tony Signorini admitted he and a friend had made the tracks with a pair of cast iron feet attached to high top black sneakers. J. Richard Greenwell, discussing the case in the ISC newsletter, summed the case up this way. The lesson to be learned within cryptozoology is, of course, fundamental. Despite careful, detailed analysis by zoologists and engineers, which provided detailed and sophisticated mechanical and anatomical conclusions supporting the hypothesis of a real animal, we now see that not only was the entire episode a hoax, but that it was perpetrated by relatively amateur, good-natured pranksters, not knowledgeable experts attempting through their expertise to fool zoological authorities. The experts, however, are only partly to blame for the repeated and premature proclamation of the authenticity of Bigfoot evidence. Hold on a second. Would they not also be to blame for repeated and premature proclamation of the hoax of certain Bigfoot evidence being a hoax? I mean, he's going one way, but not the other. I mean, it's kind of weird. Sounds like bias to me. After all, other areas of science are not fraught with such deception and hoaxing. In physics and biology, light waves and protozoa aren't trying to trick their observers. And I'm, I'm calling BS on that also because a lot of physics theories, while, I mean, we could look at the hoax of 1919. Do you know about the, uh, the eclipse data of 1919 called the greatest hoax in 20th century science? No, I don't. So general relativity was an obscure theory by Albert Einstein prior to 1919. And so the need to test this complex and intriguing concept, it was held as gospel that sunlight passing by the sun should be bent by the gravitational attraction of the sun, something known to Sir Isaac Newton and modified by Einstein. According to prevailing wisdom, this should be observable during a total solar eclipse when the shielding of the sun's light permitted the observation of light from distant stars being bent around the sun. Arthur Eddington traveled to Princip, Africa with the express purpose of proving Einstein right. Prior to that, he was an advocate of Einstein due in part to the fact that both men shared the same political beliefs. Pacifism. In his zeal to be both a peacemaker and a kingmaker, Eddington wanted to be known as the man who discovered Einstein. Eddington engaged in corruption and derogation of the scientific data, the scientific method, and much of the scientific community. To this day, this completely manufactured data set is quoted by prominent scientists and the organs of publication. It surpasses the pit-down fraud, an attempt by a charlatan to fool anthropologists into thinking they had found the missing link, as the greatest hoax of the 20th and 21st century science. So the hoax of 1919, otherwise known as the eclipse data from 1919, here and after called the eclipse. 
Einstein's dubious science led other scientists to disgrace themselves for the express purpose of proving Einstein right about general relativity. It is almost unimaginable to ponder just how bad reputable scientists are when it comes to understanding the limitations of scientific instruments, the limits of the physical conditions under which the data is collected, and a complete lack of understanding of the logic behind the various predictions for the deflection of light. These scientists don't appear to understand what the scientific method is or how to apply it. Strong models are like crude filters, readily admitting data consistent with the theory and systematically rejecting data inconsistent with the theory. This results in a feedback loop between the corrupted and derogated data to the strong model. They reinforce each other. This has been the case for general relativity. It went from an obscure concept from a somewhat obscure scientist to the reigning paradigm overnight, dominating thinking in theoretical physics over the past half century. Strong models corrupt weak men and women. The desire to conform is almost as strong as the desire to create. Strong models discourage free and independent thought. Where wealth, power, and prestige come into play, they serve as a club to back promising alternatives. General relativity is just such a model. I have previously drawn the analogy between strong models and the queen bee syndrome. What is the first official act of any queen bee when she recognizes what she is? To immediately kill off any potential rivals. This is how strong models operate. Consider this observation from Ian McCausland. In spite of the fact that the experimental evidence for relativity seems to have been very flimsy in 1919, Einstein's enormous fame has been remained intact. It is suggested that the announcement of the eclipse observation in 1919 was not a triumph of science as it is often portrayed, but rather an obstacle to object consideration of alternatives. According to the late Sir John Maddox, former editor of Nature, the results from the eclipse were not particularly accurate and the subsequent eclipse observations are no better. So Einstein, who ends up winning a Nobel Prize off this fraudulent data in one of the greatest hoaxes of all time, the greatest hoax in 20th century science, as proclaimed by Richard Moody Jr. in the article that I just read in issue 87 of the September-October magazine, Infinite Energy Magazine, 2009. And it's actually well known now, but for some reason, people still don't want to talk about it. So once again, this guy's wrong again about other fields not having this kind of hoaxing, because it does. Even when there is no intentional hoaxing, experts have been fooled. Wouldn't that go both ways also? Because if experts are fooled into thinking it's a hoax, they dismiss it as a hoax when it could be legitimate. I mean, we don't know. In March 1986, Anthony Woolridge, an experienced hiker in the Himalayas, saw what he thought was a Yeti standing in the snow near a ridge about 500 feet away. He described the figure as having a head that was large and squarish, and the body seemed to be covered with dark hair. It didn't move or make noise, but Woldridge saw odd tracks in the snow that seemed to lead toward the figure. He took two photos of the creature, which were later analyzed and shown to be genuine and undoctored. Many in the Bigfoot community seized upon the Woldridge photos as clear evidence of a Yeti, including John Napier. Many suggested that because of his hiking experience, it was unlikely Woldridge made a mistake. The next year, researchers returned to the spot and found that Woldridge had simply seen a rock outcropping that looked vertical from his position. Woldridge admitted his misidentification. Okay, so if I misidentify a rock for a bear, does that mean bears don't exist? Okay, that's a good point. I'm just not following. It's just the, the cognitive dissonance is so extreme that they're just they're just falling for all these types of fallacies in an attempt to discredit absolutely anything that could point to the existence of a Bigfoot creature. Now, if Bigfoot doesn't exist, 
I mean, there are logical ways to make that case. I've, I've made a bunch of them as well. But uh, let's move on. Smoke and fire. Bigfoot researchers readily admit that many sightings are misidentifications of normal animals, while others are downright hoaxes. Diane Stocking, a curator for the BFRO, concedes that about 70% of sightings turn out to be hoaxes or mistakes. Lauren Coleman puts the figure even higher at at least 80%. I mean, I'm willing to even go 90. But anyway, the remaining sightings, that small portion of reports that can't be explained away, intrigue researchers and keep the pursuit alive. The issue is then essentially turned into the claim where there's smoke, there's fire. But is that really true? Does the dictum genuinely hold that given the mountains of claims and evidence, there must be some validity to the claims? I propose not. The evidence suggests that there are enough sources of error, bad data, flawed methodological assumptions, mistaken identifications, poor memory recall, hoaxing, etc., that there does not have to be, nor is it likely to be, a hidden creature lurking amid the unsubstantiated cases. The claim has also several inherent assumptions, including the notion that the unsolved claims or sightings are qualitatively differently from the solved ones. But paranormal researchers and cryptozoology are littered with cases that were deemed irrefutable evidence of the paranormal only to fall apart upon further investigations or hoax or confessions. You know, what also is interesting, what about the potential for cases that were dismissed as hoaxes or mistaken identity that actually weren't? What about those cases? Nobody wants to talk about those? If Bigfoot actually is accepted by the so-called mainstream science one day, they could go back and reevaluate cases that were dismissed as either hoaxes or misidentifications or poor memory recall and actually say, wait a second, especially if that was a known area, if Bigfoot becomes uh, an officially recognized creature, they would have official areas where they live, where certain populations are and whatnot. And some of these people that kind of admitted to either misidentifying, misremembering, whatnot. Maybe they were in a hot spot, and then you'd be like, well, wait a second, maybe they didn't. But of course, nobody wants to talk about those possibilities. None of these so-called skeptics. There will always be cases in which there is simply not enough evidence to prove something one way or another. To use an analogy borrowed from investigator Joe Nickel, just because a small percentage of homicides remain unsolved doesn't mean that we invoke a homicide gremlin appearing out of thin air to take victims' lives to explain the unsolved crimes. Wow, this guy's really good at making really bad analogies. It is not that such cases are unexplainable using known science, just that not enough naturalistic information is available to make a final determination. Now, that's a pretty good point. If you can't make a final determination, why would you make it one way or the other? Why would you say there's definitely no Bigfoot creature? Kind of weird, kind of weird. A lack of information or negative evidence cannot be used as positive evidence for a claim, of course. To do so is to engage in a logical fallacy of arguing from ignorance. We don't know what left the tracks or what the witnesses saw, therefore it must have been a Bigfoot. Many Bigfoot sightings report something big, dark, and hairy, but Bigfoot is not the only alleged creature that matches the vague description. So wait a second. So is this guy even more cognitive dissonant than I thought? Because he's aware of logical fallacies, because he's, he states the fallacy arguing from ignorance, but he doesn't understand that a majority of Bigfoot researchers, I can't speak for all of them, some of them might claim that, but I haven't, I haven't really seen claims that since we don't know what it is, it's Bigfoot. I haven't seen those claims. I've seen claims of, well, we don't know what it is. It could be Bigfoot. We don't know. We need more evidence. So if we don't know, it's, it's more about the possibility of it being Bigfoot. Because he's, he's basically, he's committing fallacies one after the other. If you don't know what it is, it doesn't mean it's not Bigfoot. <laughs> so, yes, 
this fella seems very cognitive dissonant. The future for Bigfoot. Ultimately, the biggest problem with the argument for the existence of Bigfoot is that no bones or bodies have been discovered. This is really the 800-pound Bigfoot on the researchers' backs, and no matter how they explain away the lack of other types of evidence, the simple fact remains that unlike nearly every other serious scientific pursuit, they can't point to a live or dead sample of what they're studying. If the Bigfoot creatures across the United States are really out there, then each passing day would be one day closer to their discovery. Well, maybe it is. How do we know? The story we're being asked to believe is that thousands of giant, hairy, mysterious creatures are constantly eluding capture and discovery and have for a century or more. Once again, maybe it's only hundreds. Maybe at this point, it's only dozens. We don't really know. And once again, if their evolutionary nature is to be evasive, I mean, how often do you see a bear in the woods where there are known bear populations? If you look up the number, the population of bears at certain uh, national parks and then go out and try to spot one, it's, it's pretty difficult. I've been to a few. I've only seen a bear a couple times. And these are pop areas where supposedly there's a, a large number of bears in the area. I haven't seen them. So given the fact that bears don't necessarily haven't necessarily evolved to escape human being observed by humans, if Bigfoot have, if Bigfoot are closer to human intelligence or are from a different evolutionary line, that'd be a lot smarter. Would that be smart enough to evade capture? I don't know. But to just illogically assume that the creature is so unintelligent and didn't specifically evolve to evade capture and its survival depended on it, that's kind of weird. And of course, that's without even going into the whole interdimensional angle where obviously they wouldn't be leaving much of a trace. And that's, of course, ignoring the Ketchum study, which was suppressed. And it actually was peer-reviewed from leaked emails. And we will be doing a dedicated podcast on the Ketchum study. But uh, And once again, if there is a conspiracy, they would obviously, which we will be going over cases where there were bodies and the bodies did go missing. So once again, does Bigfoot exist without a conspiracy? Possibly only if it's interdimensional. I, I think it is more logical that if Bigfoot exists, there definitely seems to be something strange going on in covering up its existence. At some point, Bigfoot's luck must run out. One out of the thousands must wander out onto a freeway and get killed by a car or get shot by a hunter or die of natural causes and get discovered by a hiker. Wait a second. Says who? If they're really intelligent creatures, why then it doesn't seem that that would happen. And if it dies of natural causes, if other Bigfoot bury their dead, or I mean, there's quite a few. I mean, how often are bear carcasses discovered in the woods or by hikers? I've done some hiking. I've never discovered a bear carcass. That doesn't mean bears don't exist. I've never seen a bear hit by a car. I've never seen a, a bear wander onto a freeway and get killed by a car. I mean, I think there are videos of bear wan bears wandering out onto freeways, but... Each passing week and month and year and decade that go by without definitive proof of the existence of Bigfoot make its existence less and less likely. Well, again, that, that's a big assumption, depending on what. If the numbers of Bigfoot are really low, or if Bigfoot specifically evolved to evade capture, I mean, it might be another hundred years. Or if it's interdimensional, of course, then not necessarily make its existence less and less likely. If Bigfoot has the IQ of a bear, then yes, then yes, it's a proof of its existence would be less and less likely. But that also, if they're only in vast remote areas of wilderness where nobody goes, they're not necessarily going to wander to civilization, especially if they have food 
or some kind of food source. I don't know. There's too many missing information to say what's less and less likely. On the other hand, if Bigfoot is instead a self-perpetuating phenomena with no genuine creature at its core, the stories, sightings, and legends will likely continue unabated for centuries. Like the cases of other cryptids that were eventually discovered. In this case, the believers will have all the evidence they need to keep searching. Some of it provided by hoaxers, others perhaps by honest mistakes, all literally basted with wishful thinking. Either way, it's a fascinating topic. If Bigfoot exists, then the mystery will be solved. If they don't exist, the mystery will endure. So far, it has endured for at least half a century. Okay, so what are your thoughts on this article by Benjamin Radford? Very, very fallacious, but interesting nonetheless. Um, yes, interesting. I mean, I don't know. Just, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> well, that's a good thing you were paying attention. You've been doing some Bigfoot research. What, you got nothing to add on the Bigfoot topic? Well, I don't think I've been doing, like, research. I've been entertaining myself. But I saw this, like, TV show, like, on YouTube, um... This, this psychiatrist or psych, uh, I think psychologist, um, he didn't believe in Bigfoot and then he ran into Bigfoot and then he did, became a researcher. <laughs> so that was pretty interesting. Um, oh yeah, I don't blame, I mean, I don't necessarily believe or, dis or disbelieve. I believe in possibilities because when you don't know, you don't know. On Mindshock, the only thing we know for sure is that we don't know anything for sure. <laughs> But, I mean, Bigfoot could exist or not exist. I mean, I, it, it's kind of strange to have a passionate opinion either way, unless you've seen it. If you've seen it, what are you going to say? You're not going to believe somebody who's telling you to deny your experience. Yep. I haven't seen it, so I can't say definitively it exists for sure. I also don't know all the secrets of the universe. I don't know all the dimensions that there are. I don't really know anything about that. If I was, a, you know, like in another 100, 200 years... If humans survive and they know all about dimension hopping and that certain animals can, um, from other dimensions can travel or whatnot, or maybe aliens are dumping Bigfoot here as some kind of prison planet. I mean, there, there's quite a few, quite a few different theories. Now, as another article, I'm going to read a logical argument now as a counterpoint. It's not specifically about Bigfoot, but it's very interesting. It's written by Daniel Drezin. Zen and the art of debunkery, or how to debunk just about anything. While informed skepticism is an integral part of the scientific method, professional debunkers, often called knee-jerk skeptics, tend to be skeptics in name only and to speak with little or no authority on the subject matter of which they are so passionately skeptical. By Dan Drazin. Introduction. So you've had a close encounter with a UFO or its occupants. Or maybe you've experienced an impossible healing. A perfectly cogent conversation with your dead uncle or an irrefutable demonstration of free energy. And you've begun to suspect that the official view of reality isn't the whole picture. Mention any of these things to most working scientists and be prepared for anything. From patronizing cynicism to merciless ridicule. After all, science is purely hard-nosed enterprise that should have little patience for expanded notions of reality, right? Wrong. Like all systems of truth-seeking, the scientific method applied with integrity has a profoundly expansive, liberating impulse at its core. This zen in the heart of science is revealed when the practitioner sets aside arbitrary beliefs 
cultural preconceptions and groupthink and approaches the nature of things with beginner's mind. Given the freedom to express itself, reality can speak freshly and freely and can be heard more clearly. Appropriate testing and objective validation can then follow in due course. Seeing with humility, curiosity, and fresh eyes was once the main point of science, but today it is often a different story. As the scientific enterprise has been bent toward exploitation, commercialization, institutionalization, hyper-specialization, and new orthodoxy, it has increasingly preoccupied itself with disconnected facts in a psychological, social, and ecological vacuum. So divorced has official science become from the greater scheme of things that it tends to deny or disregard entire domains of reality and to satisfy itself with reducing all of life and consciousness to a dead physics. In forgetting that all knowledge is provisional and subject to new discovery, mainstream science seems to be treading the wary path of the ossified religions it presumed to replace. Where free, dispassionate inquiry once reigned, emotions now run high in the defense of fundamentalized scientific truth. As anomalies mount up beneath a sea of denial, defenders of the faith and the kingdom cling with increasing self-righteousness to the hull of a leaking paradigm. Faced with provocative evidence of things undreamt of in their philosophy, many otherwise mature scientists revert to a kind of reactive infantilism characterized by blind faith in the absoluteness of the familiar. Small wonder, then, that so many promising fields of inquiry remain shrouded in superstition, ignorance, denial, disinformation, taboo, and debunkery. What is debunkery? Essentially, it is the attempt to debunk or invalidate new fields of discovery by substituting scientific rhetoric for scientific inquiry. While informed skepticism is an integral part of the scientific method, professional debunkers, often called knee-jerk skeptics, tend to be skeptics in name only and to speak with little or no authority on the subject matter of which they are so passionately skeptical. At best, debunkers will occasionally expose other people's errors, but for the most part, they purvey their own brand of pseudoscience, fall prey to their own superstition and gullibility, and contribute little to the actual advancement of knowledge. As such, they well and truly represent the right wing of science. To throw this reprobate behavior into bold, if somewhat comic relief, I have composed a useful how-to guide for aspiring debunkers. This manual includes special sections devoted to debunking, extraterrestrial intelligence, alternative healing methods, astrology, and free energy. I spotlight these fields not because I necessarily support all related claims, but because they are among the most aggressively and thoughtlessly debunked subjects in the whole of modern history. Many of the debunking strategies laid bare here have been adapted nearly verbatim from the classic works of history's most remarkable debunkers. Though they often cross the threshold of absurdity under their own steam, I confess I have nudged a few across it myself for the sake of making a point. As for the rest, their fallacious reasoning, fanatical bigotry, twisted logic, and sheer goofiness will sound frustratingly familiar to those who have dared explore beneath oceans of denial and disingenuousness and have attempted in good faith to report their observations. So without further ado, how to debunk just about anything. One, setting the stage. Before commencing to debunk, prepare your equipment. Equipment needed, one armchair.
Put on the right face. Cultivate a condescending air, certifying that your personal opinions are backed by the full faith and credit of God. Adopting a disdainful upper-class manner is optional, but highly recommended. Employ vague, subjective, dismissive terms such as ridiculous, trivial, crackpot, or bunk in a manner that purports to carry the full force of scientific authority. Keep your arguments as abstract and theoretical as possible. This will send the message that accepted theory overrides any actual evidence that might challenge it, and that therefore no such evidence is worth examining. By every indirect means at your disposal, imply that science is powerless to police itself against fraud and misperception, and that only self-appointed vigilantism can save it from itself. Project your subjective opinions from beneath a cloak of ostensible objectivity. Always characterize unorthodox statements as claims which are touted and your own assertions as facts which are stated. <laughs> Two, redefining science. Portray science not as an open-ended process of discovery, but as a preemptive holy war against invading hordes of quackery-spouting infidels. Since in war the ends justify the means you may fudge, stretch, or or violate the scientific method, or even omit it entirely in the name of defending it. Equate the narrow, stringent, rigorous, and critical elements of science with all of science, while similarly dismissing the value of inquiry, exploration, and discovery. Though stubborn negativity can no more be equated with science than a braking system can be equated with an automobile, insist that science consists wholly of the ruthless application of doubt. If anyone objects, accuse them of viewing science in exclusively fuzzy, subjective, or mystical terms. Likewise, while it would be ridiculous to equate a vehicle with a particular destination, declare that science equals the existing body of scientific conclusions. Reinforce the popular misconception that certain areas of inquiry are inherently unscientific. In other words, deliberately confuse the process of science with the content of science. If someone should point out that science must be neutral to subject matter and only the investigative process can be valid or flawed, dismiss such objections using a method employed successfully by generations of politicians. Simply reassure everyone that there is no contradiction here. While insisting with one side of your mouth that the scientific method is universal in its application and should be free to inquire into anything whatsoever, use the other side to deem it ineffectual when applied to unpopular subject matter. Be sure to assert in time-honored conservative fashion that freedom isn't license and that some questions are best left to the theologians. Declare that the progress of science depends on explaining the unknown in terms of the known. In other words, science equals reductionism. You can apply the reductionist approach in any situation by discarding more and more and more evidence until what little is left can be explained entirely in terms of established knowledge. Downplay the fact that free inquiry and legitimate disagreement are a normal part of science. Insist that mainstream Western science is completely objective and is uninfluenced by covert beliefs, untestable assumptions, ideological biases, political pressures, or commercial interests. If an unfamiliar or inexplicable phenomenon happens to be considered true or useful by a non-Western or other traditional society, you may dismiss it out of hand as anecdotal nonsense, ignorant misconception, medieval superstition, 
or fairy lore. Declare that individual temperament, personality type, and human emotions exert no influence whatsoever on the objectivity of real scientists. Ignore the fact that the denial of emotions, prejudices, idiosyncrasies, and plain old human insecurity can exert powerful subconscious influences on the scientific enterprise, often with hilariously unscientific results. Avoid addressing the many historical parallels between the emergence of science and that of democracy, both of which originally rested on the revolutionary foundations of independent thought, honest inquiry, and the free flow of information and the questioning of established authority. Reinforce the popular fiction that our scientific knowledge is complete and finished. Do this by asserting that if such and such discovery were legitimate, then surely we would already know about it. <laughs> That's a good one. Assert that nothing can possibly occur that circumvents Newton's 17th century formulation of physical law. If something should remind you that the 17th century did not have the last word on physics, change the subject as deftly as you can. Characterize any inquiry into a genuine mystery as indiscriminate while equating the summary dismissal of unorthodox ideas with intelligent discrimination. If someone reminds you that in science, one point of view requires as much proof or disproof as another, invoke the irrelevant truism that orthodox beliefs have already been proven. State categorically that the unconventional may be dismissed at best an honest misinterpretation of the conventional. If pressed about your novel interpretations of the scientific method, declare that intellectual integrity is a subtle issue. At every opportunity, extol the virtues of critical thinking while behaving as if the phrase means nothing more than ruthless negativity. Avoid explaining that critical thinking presupposes a willingness to examine all sides of an issue with equal rigor. Three, liberating the rules of evidence. When an anomaly rears its head, avoid examining the actual evidence, and at all costs do not accompany claimants to their laboratories or to the sites of their observations. This will allow you to say with impunity, I have seen absolutely no evidence to support such ridiculous claims. Note that this technique has withstood the test of time and dates back to at least the age of Galileo. By simply refusing to look through his telescope, the ecclesiastical authorities bought the church over three centuries worth of denial, free and clear. Having avoided examining the evidence, cover your tracks by reassuring your critics that, after all, you would certainly have loved to be honored as a champion of such a fantastic phenomena, so why in the world wouldn't I examine the evidence? If examining the evidence becomes unavoidable, report back that there is nothing new here. If confronted by a watertight body of evidence that has survived the most rigorous tests, simply dismiss it as being too pat. Deny the possibility of phenomena for which no plausible explanations have been advanced. Ignore such contrary examples as the existence of disease prior to the discovery of microbes. The sun's copious production of energy long before the discovery of nuclear fusion. And the stubborn persistence of gravity despite our stubborn ignorance of its inner workings. With an air of disdain, assert that most scientists regard such claims as nonsense, implying that you have surveyed the opinion of 51% of the world's scientists and found them to be in absolute agreement with your views. Convince the world of your divine omniscience by declaring that there is no evidence for X. 
After all, only someone who knows everything can claim that no evidence for X exists anywhere in the universe. Argue that some things are possible but not probable, although to know all that is or is not probable would demand complete knowledge of every dimension of reality in the universe and beyond. That's an excellent point. I refer to that all the time because how can you say something is probable or not probable based on information you don't have without the complete picture? If a card-carrying debunker expresses a willingness to actually examine an anomalous claim in depth, exuriate him at once for abandoning his objectivity. Equate expertise in an unorthodox subject with a priori bias in its favor. Then, using yourself as an example, assert that only a complete ignoramus can possibly be trusted to examine it without prejudice. Since the public tends to be unclear about the distinction between evidence and proof, do your best to help maintain this murkiness. If absolute proof is lacking, state categorically that there is no evidence. When presented with mountains of data supporting the existence of an anomaly, declare that since the probability of it being true is zero, it would take an infinite amount of data to prove it. If sufficient evidence has been presented to warrant further investigation of an unusual phenomenon, argue that evidence alone proves nothing. Ignore the fact that preliminary evidence is not supposed to prove anything. Publicly praise the debunkers who invented the absolute proof criterion i.e., that ironclad proof must be attained before an unorthodox claim can gain sufficient respectability to be discussed seriously. And a brilliant move it was because in practice, proof is a matter of mainstream scientific consensus, so a marginalized phenomenon can never actually be proven. <laughs> if presented with copious documentary evidence supporting an unorthodox claim, wave it off and declare it's only words on paper, no reason to take any of it seriously. Imply that proof precedes evidence. This will eliminate the possibility of initiating any meaningful process of investigation, particularly if no criteria of proof have yet been established for the phenomena in question. Insist that criteria of proof cannot possibly be established for the phenomenon that do not exist. Although science is not supposed to tolerate vague or double standards, always insist that unconventional phenomena must be judged by a separate, yet ill-defined set of scientific rules. Do this by declaring that extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence, but take care never to specify where the ordinary ends and the extraordinary begins, or who gets to draw the line. This will allow you to manufacture an infinitely receding horizon that keeps extraordinary evidence just out of reach at any point in time. In the same manner, insist on classes of evidence that are impossible to obtain. For example, declare that unidentified aerial phenomena may be considered real only if we can bring them into laboratories to strike them with hammers and analyze their physical properties. Disregard the accomplishments of the inferential sciences, astronomy for example, which gets on just fine without bringing actual planets, stars, galaxies, and black holes into its labs and striking them with hammers. At every opportunity, reinforce the notion that familiarity equals rationality. The unfamiliar is therefore irrational and consequently inadmissible as evidence. Occam's razor, or the principle of persimony, says that the correct explanation of a mystery will usually involve the simplest fundamental principles. Insist, therefore, that the most familiar explanation is de by definition the simplest. While you're at it, imply strongly that Occam's razor is not merely a philosophical tool that cuts whichever way you point it, but an immutable law that always supports your particular views. Equate a lack of familiar, obvious, hard evidence with proof of non-existence. Skirt the fact that many comment transient phenomena, 
the passing of a bird, a breeze, radio waves, light, demonstrably exist without leaving behind gross collectible evidence as a souvenir, and that many things exist for which evidence has not yet been found, has been ignored, or is subject to interpretation. Decree what lies outside the current scientific framework cannot exist, since evidence for the existence of what cannot exist cannot itself exist, declare that the application of due scientific process to its investigation would be an exercise in futility. As needed, repeat the absurd bromidic flatulence. Believe no evidence that hasn't been confirmed by theory. Four, messaging the context. Make sure every effort to marginalize any groundbreaking field of inquiry. This will ensure it's attracting a coterie of disgruntled eccentrics who will then self-discredit the field in perpetuity without your having to lift a finger. If this fails to occur spontaneously, quietly engage some unemployed disgruntled eccentrics to jumpstart the chain reaction. Bear in mind that once a field has been successfully marginalized, papers in that field tend to be excluded from the normal process of scientific assessment and barred from publication in mainstream scientific journals. So seize every opportunity to exoriate investigators in such fields for their failure to publish in mainstream scientific journals. <laughs> Maintain that investigations of unconventional phenomena, a single flaw invalidates the whole. Regarding possibly flawed conventional studies, however, you may sagely opine that, after all, situations are complex and human beings are imperfect. Despite copious evidence to the contrary, assert that conventional science is immune to fraud and that any evidence of data fudging in the mainstream is purely anecdotal. Trivialize the case by trivializing the entire field in question. Characterize the study of orthodox phenomena as deep and time-consuming, while deeming unorthodox studies so insubstantial as to demand nothing more than a scan of the tabloids. If pressed on this, shrug your shoulders, raise your eyebrows, shake your head, turn up your palms, and simply say it with mock puzzlement, but there's nothing to study. Discourage any study of history that may reveal today's dogma as yesterday's heresy. Five, handy tips and tricks. Use debunkery itself as a priori disproof. Gesture as if brushing away a housefly and simply assert, oh, that's been widely debunked. Put on conservative airs and calmly report that unorthodox claims appear not to accord with existing knowledge. Assert that investigations are ongoing and are expected to reveal nothing out of the ordinary. Practice debunkery by association. Lump together all phenomena popularly deemed unorthodox and suggest that their proponents and researchers speak with a single voice. In this way, you can indiscriminately drag material across disciplinary lines from one case or another to support your views as needed. If, for example, if a claim having some superficial similarity to the one at hand has been or is popularly assumed to have been exposed as fraudulent, cite it as if it were an appropriate example. Then put on a gloating smile, lean back in your armchair, and calmly say, I rest my case. That, that's, a, that's a pretty good example of the article I just read on the 50 years of Bigfoot evidence because he just obviously lumped all of these Bigfoot researchers together and assumed hoaxes that would apply to everything, painting with a broad brush, hasty generalization, just one fallacy after another. But somehow he cited the fallacy of arguing from ignorance that, and, and he actually committed that fallacy by lumping it all together as well. <laughs> 
At every opportunity, invoke the unassailability of cold logic. Ignore the fact that logic, however watertight, can never be more true or useful than the unconscious assumptions and fudged data underlying its application. Keep an arsenal of scientific buzzwords at the tip of your tongue. So armed, you can effortlessly explain away even the most firmly acknowledged mysteries with a few impressive phrases in a wave of your hand. For example, the undeniable but incomprehensible facts of animal migration may be definitely ascribed to as a biological spatiotemporal vector navigation program. Likewise, you may call upon such quasi-substantial conceptual conveniences as biological clock, self-organization, and cellular memory to deflate any suggestion that orthodox science may lack satisfactory explanations for intractably puzzling phenomena. Establishing a crusading scientific truth foundation staffed and funded by a hive of fawning acolytes, then purport to offer a million-dollar reward to anyone who can repeatedly demonstrate a paranormal phenomenon. Set the bar for paranormality nowhere in particular. Set the bar for repeatability at a generous 98%, safely ensuring that even normal scientific studies that demand a more preponderance of evidence or average results above chance would fail to qualify for the prize. Should someone actually meet or exceed your criteria, you can effortlessly dismiss their claim by pointing out that they've just proven the phenomenon to be perfectly normal. Having established the Scientific Truth Prize, discontinue it with great fanfare on grounds that it would be pointless. After all, since nobody had claimed the prize, the paranormal must be bunked. When confronted with the notion that open-mindedness may be a good thing, declare that you don't want your mind to be so open that your brains fall out. If anyone should point out that it is the skull, not the mind, that encloses the brain, or that an open mind would make things fall in, not out, put on a dyspeptic scowl and bark, oh, come on, let's lighten up. Learn to psychologize meaninglessly. You can always don an apparent cloak of wisdom by regurgitating such obvious universal truths as, of course, people always see what they're looking for. Never let on, by definition, Universal truths also applied to oneself. Use the word imagination as an epithet that applies only to seeing what's not there and not to denying what's there. For example, accuse people of imagining they see UFOs while you, of course, imagine that they don't. If a significant number of people agree that they have observed something that violates the consensus reality, simply ascribe it to mass hallucination. Avoid addressing the possibility that the consensus reality might itself constitute a mass hallucination. That's an interesting one, too. Uh, if anybody wants to listen to a really good case about, so, about some things that are explained away as mass hallucinations, you can check out my Mothman podcast series. I go pretty in-depth to the varying aspects of the Mothman case. I mean, UFOs, men in black, it's not just the Mothman. Plenty of paranormal phenomenon were observed by over 100 people. But it was probably all just mass hallucination. If 10 teams of scientists at independent laboratories have successfully replicated an unorthodox phenomenon, complain that the work of those 10 teams taken together has not been replicated. When applying the term controversial, do so with a wink, a half smile, and an undertone of belittling dismissal. Invoke the names of famous people. For example, in response to an opponent's cogent argument, you may reply with annoyance. My God, have you never read Nietzsche? If someone should remind you that Nietzsche routinely exoriated cowardly rationalizers of the status quo, deftly co-opt the situation by retorting my point exactly.
accuse investigators of unusual phenomena of believing in invisible forces and extrasensory realities. If they should point out that the physical sciences routinely deal with both of these, gravity, electromagnetism, subtle chemistry, nuclear phenomenon, quantum effects, respond with a condescending chuckle that this is a naive interpretation of the facts. Label any poorly understood phenomena occult, fringe, metaphysical, mystical, weird, supernatural, paranormal, or new age. This will get most mainstream scientists off the case immediately on purely emotional grounds. If you're lucky, this may delay any responsible investigation of such phenomena by decades or even century. Characterize any phenomenon as paranormal whose degree of normalcy cannot be gauged in the first place due to perverse social taboos that effectively prohibit its open discussion and systematic investigation. For example, if half the population talked to their deceased great uncles twice a week, it would be considered normal, not paranormal. But how can we possibly determine whether they do or they don't? Imply that mainstream religion is the only philosophical alternative to materialistic science. Therefore, anyone researching non-material aspects of reality must believe in an anthropomorphic Judeo-Christian God. Declare that since nature's laws appear to be fixed and external, one's understandings and interpretations of nature's laws must be correspondingly fixed and eternal. When a rigorous parapsychology experiment shows only chance results, accept it as conclusive disproof of psychic functioning. When it shows well above chance, attribute it definitively to cherry-picking the evidence. <laughs> if there is anything especially brazen you wish to assert, but for considerations of scientific protocol or civil law, just say it is widely believed that a universally handy phrase that lets you just say about anything without fear of criticism, contradiction, or legal jeopardy. Gotta love those appeal to popularity fallacies. When nailed for your abysmal ignorance of the subject at hand, declare that everyone is entitled to their opinion. Your diligence in debunkery must reflect your constant awareness that you are working at a disadvantage. After all, the facts must adhere to your theories 100% of the time without fail, while researchers of the unorthodox only have to get it right once. So hedge your bets by pigeonholing resistant cases as leftovers or residue. This will imply that they are just a small expectable percentage of anomalies that existing theories will explain sooner or later. Six, calling the kettle black. Keep your opponent's position from being heard and understood by vigorous finger pointing and mounting an impenetrable barrage of meaningless rhetorical invectives such as not even wrong, junk, science, mere speculation, snake oil, and so forth. To avoid betraying your own de facto contempt for the scientific method, pound athletically on the arm of your chair and vociferously condemn pseudoscience. Wield the term pseudoscience indiscriminately. For example, to attack claims that never purported to be scientific in the first place, i.e. empirical observations not yet ensconced in theory or tested scientifically, as well as claims arrived at by perfectly scientific means, but which remain debatable or unresolved. Direct your most vociferous accusations of pseudoscience against those fields in which occasional fraud has in fact been perpetrated. Do this despite the fact that most such fraud has been exposed by insiders, not outside critics, and that such revelations say more about the effectiveness of measures against frauds within those fields than about their weakness. That's an excellent point on the article I read before on the Bigfoot hoaxes. Seven, ridicule to the rescue. 
If reasoned argument is unavailable to you, or you have been shamed for your unscientific behavior, you can always fall back on the single most chillingly effective weapon in the war against discovery and innovation. Ridicule. Ridicule has the unique power to make those unfamiliar with the facts go completely unconscious in a twinkling. It fails to sway only those few who are well enough informed or of sufficiently independent mind not to buy into the kind of emotional consensus that ridicule provides. By appropriate innuendo and example, imply that, that ridicule constitutes an essential feature of the scientific method that can raise the level of objectivity and dispassionateness with which any investigation is conducted. Bear in mind that sufficiently persistent ridicule can push its victims over the edge into bitterness, anger, homicidal insanity, and a colorful spectrum of sociopathic behaviors guaranteed to discredit their views. Eight, getting technical. Employed TCP, technically correct pseudo-refutation. I.e., if someone remarks that all great truths began as blasphemies, respond immediately that not all blasphemies have become great truths. Because your response was technically correct, no one will notice that it did not really refute the original remark. With a wave of your hand, declare that people get taken in by all kinds of unfounded beliefs. The technical truth of this statement will effectively mask the fact that it does not necessarily apply to the situation at hand, or that it may just as well apply to your own inestimable capacity for discernment. Nine, sleight of hand. Engage the services of a professional stage magician who can appear to mimic the phenomena in question. For example, ESP, psychokinesis, or levitation. This will convince the public that the original witness to such phenomena must have been duped by talented conjurers who happened to be passing through that day and hoaxed the original phenomena in precisely the same way. Always consider eyewitness testimony regarding anomalous events inadmissibly anecdotal, no matter the caliber of the witness, how mutually independent their observations, or how firmly they agree on what they saw. When a witness or claimant states something in a manner that is not 100% scientifically perfect, treat this as if it were not scientific at all. If the claimant is not a credentialed scientist, argue that his or her perceptions cannot possibly be accurate, intelligent, or authoritative. The sole exceptions would be the professional illusionist and fellow debunkers, whose views may always be deemed objective in any field, regardless of their actual degree of relevant expertise. If independent investigators verify or successfully replicate an unorthodox claim, insist that they must have been in collusion with the claimants. If called upon to justify your certainty, reply that it was self-evident due to the nature of the claim. Find a prosaic phenomenon that, to the uninitiated, resembles the claimed phenomenon. Then suggest that the existence of the commonplace look-alike logically forbids the existence of the genuine article. For example, imply that since people often see faces in rocks, clouds, and oatmeal, the enigmatic faces on Mars must be similar illusions and are therefore unworthy of investigation. Use smoke and mirrors, i.e. obfuscation and illusion. Never forget that a slippery mixture of fact, opinion, innuendo, irrelevant information, and outright lies will fool most of the people most of the time. As little as one part fact to ten parts BS will usually do the trick. Some veteran debunkers use homeopathic dilutions of fact with remarkable success. Cultivate the art of slipping back and forth between fact and fiction so undetectably that the flimsiest foundation of truth will always appear to firmly support your entire edifice. Of opinion. Remember that you can easily appear to refute anyone's claims by building straw men to demolish. One way to do this is to misquote them while preserving a convincing grain of truth. For example, by acting as if they intended the extreme of any position they've taken.
Another effective strategy with a long history of success is simply to misreplicate their experiments or to avoid replicating them at all on grounds that to do so would be ridiculous or fruitless. To make the whole process even easier, respond not to their actual claims, but to their claims as reported by the media or as propagated in popular myth. Deploy the just because argument. First, find an internet posting that supports a particular unorthodox view. Then, while carefully ignoring the substantive evidence for it, accuse people of believing it just because they read about it on the internet. Insist that such and such unorthodox claim is not scientifically testable because no self-respecting grant-making organization would fund such ridiculous tests. Equate the apparent discrediting of claimants with actual disproof of their claims. <laughs> 10. Using questions as weapons. Use a question as negative proof. Example, there can be no extraterrestrial visitors because how would they get here fast enough across light years of space? Ask questions that appear to contain generally assumed knowledge that supports your views. For example, why do no military brass police officers, air traffic controllers, or psychiatrists report UFOs? If someone points out that they have in fact done so for years, insist that they must all be mentally unstable. Ask unanswerable questions based on arbitrary criteria of proof. For example, if this claim were true, why haven't we seen it on TV? Or in this or that scientific journal. Never forget the mother of all such questions. If UFOs are extraterrestrial, why haven't they landed on the White House lawn? 11. Harnessing the media. Shield your views from the possibility of effective rebuttal by expressing them exclusively in the popular media. Avoid peer-reviewed scientific journals which demand informed discourse and typically allow those criticized to respond. Arrange to have your opinions echoed in the popular media by political, academic, or cultural icons. The degree to which you can stretch the truth is directly proportional to the prestige of your mouthpiece. At the slightest suggestion that the light of science may be shown into previously forbidden territory, make yourself available to media producers who seek fair and balanced reporting of unorthodox views, but agree to participate only in those presentations whose time constraints and editorial policies preclude such luxuries as discussion, debate, and, and systematic presentation of evidence. Hold claimants responsible for the production values, editorial taste, and audience demographics of any media or press that reports their claim. If an unusual or inexplicable event is reported in a sensationalized manner, hold this as proof that the event itself must have been without substance or worth. Co-opt the cluelessness of mainstream publications. Make an example of the Scientific American, which for three years refused to report on the Wright brothers' first successful powered flight. Characterize this historical gaffe as a textbook example of prudent journalistic conservatism. Remember that most people have insufficient time or expertise for careful discrimination and tend to accept or reject the whole of an unfamiliar situation. So discredit the whole story by attempting to discredit part of the story. Here's how. A. Take one element of a case completely out of context. B. Find something prosaic that hypothetically could explain just this element. C. Declare that, therefore, this one element has been explained. D. Book the National Press Club, invite the media, and announce to the world that the entire case has been explained.
12, getting personal. If you're unable to attack the facts of the case, attack the participants or the journalists who reported the case. Ad hominem arguments or personality attacks are among the most effective ways of swaying the public and avoiding the issue. For example, if investigators of the unorthodox have profited financially from activities connected with their research, accuse them of profiting financially from activities connected with their research. If their research, publishing, speaking tours, and so forth constitute their normal line of work or sole means of support, hold that fact up as conclusive proof that income is being realized from such activities. If they have labored long and hard to achieve recognition for their work, you may safely characterize them as publicity seekers. Label any serious investigator of the unorthodox a buff or freak or as self-styled, the media's favorite code word for bogus. In a pinch, conspiracy theorists will cover just about anyone expressing any unorthodox view whatsoever. Contact a major university and arrange to stage a debate there between yourself and researchers of unorthodox phenomena. Put up posters exhorting professors to bring your students and expose them to science versus pseudoscience. Since such inflammatory language is not conducive to dispassionate debate, said researchers are likely to decline to participate, leaving them open to accusations of having shrunk from the challenge. The effectiveness of this strategy presupposes that those wily researchers do not counterpropose a debate whose posters read, bring your students and expose them to potentially historic confrontation between courageous paradigm-busting researchers armed with indisputable evidence versus cowardly brain-dead party-line pedants and officious dogmatic buffoons who have been smoked out of their ivory towers onto a level playing field. 13. Harnessing the power of belief. Characterize leading-edge researchers as true believers. Avoid betraying the fact that virtually by definition, debunkers are themselves world-class true believers, I'll bet in the status quo. Imply that making mere reference to or expressing interest in an unorthodox view equals blind belief and absolute advocacy. Then demand that all such zealots know all the answers to their most puzzling questions in complete detail ahead of time. Switch on the charm. Convince people of your own sincerity by reassuring them that you yourself would love to believe in these fantastic phenomena. Carefully sidestep the fact that science is not about believing or disbelieving, but about finding out. Diligent research that has been forced underground by the scientific establishment's attitudes and is therefore unfamiliar or inaccessible to the general public is easy to debunk. Simply insist with a patronizing smirk that such alleged research consists solely of beliefs. 14. The Joy of Fabrications Fabricate supportive expertise as needed by quoting the opinions of those in fields popularly assumed to include the necessary knowledge. Astronomers, for example, may be trotted out as experts on the UFO question, although studies in UFOlogy have never been a prerequisite for a degree in astronomy. Fabricate confessions. If a phenomena stubbornly refuses to go away, hire a couple of colorful old geezers to claim they hoaxed it. The press and the public will always tend to view confessions as sincerely motivated and will promptly abandon their critical faculties. After all, nobody wants to appear to lack compassion for self-confessed sinners. Fabricate sources of disinformation. Claim that you found the person who started the rumor that such a phenomenon exists. Fabricate entire research projects. Declare that these claims have been thoroughly discredited by the top experts in the field. Do this whether or not such experts have ever actually studied the claims or, for that matter, even exist.
15, debunking unorthodox healing practices. If an unorthodox healing practice has failed to reverse a case of terminal illness, you may deem it worthless while taking care to avoid mentioning any similar failures of conventional medicine. If an unorthodox healing practice does appear to have successfully reversed a case of terminal illness, you may summarily attribute it to chance or that that useful catch-all, spontaneous remission. After all, conventional medicine, which always has the last word, had already thrown up its hands. So what, besides chance, could have turned this lucky patient around? Declare homeopathy and acupuncture dangerous superstitions because the principles of allopathic medicine cannot explain them. Equate their successes with the placebo effect while carefully avoiding any allusions to their successful application in veterinary and pediatric medicine. Ignore the fact that the placebo effect itself, whose reality is fully acknowledged by modern medical science, can no more be explained in conventional terms than can homeopathy or acupuncture. Insist that there is no credible evidence for the efficacy of unorthodox healing methods. In this way, you may retain the appearance of scientific integrity while rejecting all supportive evidence because it is, to your mind, not credible. Debunking astrology. Point out that astrologers have failed to design research protocols and run controlled tests to provide evidence for the validity of their art that would meet your personal standards. Ignore the problem of acquiring research funds in fields towards which the academic community has consistently expressed such outright hostility as to make any such fundraising impossible. Dismiss as a fluke the result of the Mars effect research that does appear to support certain aspects of astrology on mainstream science's own terms. Although competing views are considered a sign of healthy debate in science and doctors earn a respectable income providing second opinions, assert that there is disagreement among astrologers on how certain celestial configurations are to be interpreted. Just as you might invoke Dear Abby to discredit the entire field of psychology, invoke newspaper horoscopes as the paradigm example of astrology. Then ask sarcastically, oh, come on, what is the likelihood that one-twelfth of the world's population is having the same kind of day? Ask if astrologers are effective, why aren't they filthy stinking rich? As if astrologers envied the status of the rich and sought to adopt their attitudes and emulate their lifestyle. Although astrology contends that conditions change over time, insists that should science ever evaluate it, it should do so on the time-honored basis of randomly timed samples. In that way, the changes that might otherwise have been predictable by the astrologer can be dismissed as mere statistical noise. Declare that astrology must be bogus because it was long practiced before the discovery of three outermost planets and various asteroids. Ignore the fact that astronomy was also long practiced before the discovery of those same planets and asteroids. 17. Debunking free energy and cold fusion. Although free energy researchers tend to claim only that their process convert one form of energy to another, always accuse them of naively believing that they're getting something for nothing. If someone announces a working free energy device, avoid actually testing it on the grounds that doing so would be a waste of time. Declare it fraudulent, a priori, on the basis of it appearing to violate 17th century laws of thermodynamics. Ignore the fact that ordinary nuclear reactors blatantly violate 19th century laws of thermodynamics by producing massive amounts of heat from stone-cold fuel rods. Declare that permanent magnets cannot possibly power a motor just as surely as the north wind blows all things southward. Diligently avoid the fact that even relatively simple devices can do impossible things when properly configured. For example, sailboats, which can sail into the wind. Trumpet the obvious fact that free energy devices would not themselves be free of cost, though no free energy advocate has ever claimed they would be.
Despite multiple confirmations at independent university and government labs in many countries, including the U.S. Space and Naval Warfare System Center, over several decades insist that low-energy nuclear reaction, popularly known as cold fusion, has never been confirmed because everybody knows it's a joke. Published a book entitled Cold Fusion, the Scientific Fiasco of the Century. The mere title may then be trotted out in lieu of actual disconfirming evidence. Claim that nuclear fusion at room temperature would be contrary to current understanding and would require the discovery of entirely new processes. Dismiss the fact that science routinely learns things that are contrary to current understanding and involves the discovery of entirely new processes. 18. Debunking extraterrestrial intelligence. Point out that an unidentified flying object is just that and cannot automatically be assumed to be an alien spacecraft. Do this whether or not anyone involved has assumed it to be an alien spacecraft. Label all concepts such as anti-gravity or interdimensional mobility as mere flights of fancy because phenomena having no conventional explanation cannot possibly exist. Then if an anomalous craft is reported to have hovered silently, made right angle turns at supersonic speeds, or appeared and disappeared instantly, you may summarily dismiss the report. Declare that there is no proof that life can exist in outer space. Since most people still behave as if the Earth were the center of the universe, you may safely ignore the fact that Earth, which is already in outer space, has abundant life. Concede that life elsewhere in the universe is statistically probable, but that if it existed, it couldn't possibly get here from there because we can't get there from here. Point out that the SETI program, which believes ET civilizations communicate via Earth's 20th century radio technology and which listens fruitlessly for such signals from deep space, assumes in advance that extraterrestrial intelligence can only exist light years away from Earth. Equate this faith-based assumption with conclusive proof, then insist that this invalidates all terrestrial reports of ET contact. If compelling evidence is presented for a UFO crash or some similar event, provide thousands of pages of detailed information about a formerly secret military project that might conceivably account for it. The more voluminous the information, the less the need to demonstrate any actual connection between the reported event and the military project. When someone produces purported physical evidence of alien technology, declare that no analysis can prove that its origin was extraterrestrial. After all, it might be the product of some perfectly ordinary, ultra-secret underground government lab. The only possible exception would be evidence obtained from a landing on the White House lawn. The sole circumstance universally agreed upon by generations of debunkers as conclusively certifying extraterrestrial origin. If crack military pilots flying state-of-the-art aircraft report Having closely pursued or radar-tracked UFOs assert that in most cases they must have been Venus or Jupiter, and that pilot incompetence and poor equipment must have accounted for the rest. If one of these objects was confirmed to have hovered motionlessly for a matter of minutes before taking off at blinding speed, attributed to government missile tests gone wrong. If photographs or videos depicting anomalous aerial phenomena have been presented, argue that since images can now be digitally manipulated, they prove nothing. Assert this regardless of the vintage of the material or the circumstances of its acquisition. Insist that the better the quality of a UFO photo, the greater the likelihood of fraud. Photos that have passed every known test may therefore be held to the most perfectly fraudulent of all. Declare that 95% of UFO sightings have been explained and the remaining 5% are probably cases of mistaken identity. This will get people arguing about the remaining 5% effectively heading off any embarrassing questions about the actual grounds upon which the claimed 95% might originally have been explained. Argue that all reports of humanoid extraterrestrials must be bogus because the evolution of the humanoid form on Earth is the result of an infinite number of accidents in a genetically isolated environment. Avoid addressing the logical proposition that if alien visitations have occurred, Earth cannot be considered genetically isolated in the first place.
insist that extraterrestrials would or wouldn't, should or shouldn't, can or can't behave in certain ways because such behavior would or wouldn't be logical. Base your notions of logic on how terrestrials would or wouldn't behave. Since terrestrials behave in all kinds of ways, you can theorize whatever kind of extraterrestrial behavior suits your arguments. Stereotype contact claims according to simplistic scenarios already well established in the popular imagination. If a reported ET contact appears to have no negative consequences, sarcastically accuse the claimant of believing devoutly that benevolent ETs have come to magically save us from destroying ourselves. If someone claims to have been traumatized by an alien contact, brush it aside as a classic case of hysteria. If contactees stress the essential humaneness and limitations of certain ETs they claim to have met, ask why haven't these omnipotent beings offered to solve all our problems for us? When reluctant encounter witnesses step forward, accuse them of seeking the limelight with their outlandish stories. Ask why alleged contactees and abductees haven't received alien infections. Reject as preposterous all medical evidence suggesting that such may in fact have occurred. Categorize as pure science fiction the notion that alien understandings of immunology might be in advance of our own or that sufficiently alien microorganisms might be limited in their ability to interact with our biological systems. Above all, dismiss anything that might result in an actual investigation of the matter. Travel to an isolated indigenous village in the heart of the Amazon jungle. Upon returning, report that nobody there told me they had seen any UFOs. Insist that this proves no UFOs are reported outside cultures whose populations are overexposed to trashy science fiction. Though hypnotic regression by a multitude of therapists and researchers has yielded consistent contact testimony in widespread and completely independent cases, declare that hypnosis is unreliable at the best of times and is always worthless at the hands of non-credentials practitioners. Be sure to add that the subjects must have been steeped in the ET contact literature and that regardless of their skill, credentials, and code of ethics, the hypnotists involved must have been asking leading questions. Avoid mentioning the many contact and abduction cases in which the experiencers' memories may were readily recalled with no need for hypnosis. If someone claims to have been emotionally impacted by a sighting or contact experience, point out that strong emotions can alter perceptions. Therefore, the claimant's recollections must be entirely untrustworthy. Maintain that there cannot possibly be a government cover-up of the ET question, but that it exists for legitimate reasons of national security. When government agencies, with their state-of-the-art security measures, multiple clearance levels, impenetrable compartmentalization, and so forth, are accused of a UFO cover-up, insist that a cover-up is impossible because everyone knows the government can't keep secrets. Ignore the legacy of the Manhattan Project, any number of other top-secret military and intelligence operations, and the entirety of those incalculably costed, utterly opaque activities funded by the United States Congress's black budget. Accuse conspiracy theorists of being conspiracy theorists and of believing in the existence of conspiracies. Insist that only accidentalist theories can possibly account for repeated organized patterns of suppression, denial, and disinformation activity. If you represent the military, assure the public that the military doesn't study UFOs because it's been determined that UFOs are not a threat to national security. Sidestep the questions of how in heaven's name such a determination could have even have been made and why the military, which has always been first in line to diligently analyze advanced foreign technology, has abandoned all curiosity and is now diligently looking the other way. 
19, if all else fails, if all else fails and your audience is gullible enough, simply waving your arms and shouting you are wrong enough times might pull your bacon out of the fire. If things get a bit too hot, announce your long-awaited retirement, then leave at once for the Caribbean, the Mediterranean, or the South Pacific. Since you don't want to be seen as the last fool to finally get the picture, be prepared to turn on a dime. For example, should the presence of extraterrestrial life suddenly be acknowledged by mainstream science as a global mystery of millennial proportions, simply hail this as a victim for the scientific method and declare dismissively well everyone knows this is monumentally significant issue as a matter of fact my colleagues and i have been remarking on it for years <laughs> okay so that was a very long article but uh yeah what do you think about that maxwell um that was a that was a great guide for uh, for debunking yes and if you noticed that is those are the typical arguments and fallacies used by so-called debunkers now, there are good debunkers out there. Those are the ones who probably don't necessarily call themselves debunkers, and they allow for the possibility of anything because that's a truly scientific and logical approach because you don't know what you don't know. And if you know that, then you know that you wouldn't be able to determine whether something is real or not conclusively. So, which, I mean, that would apply to Bigfoot as well. So it's interesting reading those articles back to back and note how the first article committed all of these in trying to paint Bigfoot believers with this broad brush of illogical and uh, hoax believers and just making a mess of the whole thing. So, as always, we hope you enjoyed an another episode of the Mindshock Podcast. If you like our podcast, you can donate to our PayPal. Just check the link in the description. Make sure you subscribe to the channel. If you liked the video, like the video, feel free to share it across social media platforms. If you want, you can leave a comment, question, or any thought that you want to be discussed or suggestions for future podcasts on various subjects. This is Bruce McGuire signing off at Maxwell House. We'll catch you guys next time.